0: Hi, my name is Jamie Lynch, and you are listening to Eating Habits, my podcast about everything restaurants. I will explore the human element of the hospitality business, and I'll talk to the who's who in restaurants, explore their stories, and hear what's on their minds in the ever-changing landscape of the food and beverage industry. Hello, Eating Habits listeners. This is Jamie Lynch. Welcome to another episode. This week, I will be talking with... My fiance, Corey McGovern, about the second annual North Carolina Department of Agriculture's Chefs Field Trip that happened last week up in Oriental, North Carolina, where I participated with, I don't know, like 20 other chefs or something on this field trip they put together to meet local purveyors, fishermen, farmers, and just get together and talk about North Carolina products, what's going on in the food scene. North Carolina and just kind of get together and hang out. It was a lot of fun. Um, I met a lot of cool people, hopefully some people that I'll end up interviewing on the podcast here, not in the not too distant future. But the highlight for me was, you know, getting out on the water with some of the fishermen, seeing how they do what they do. And I actually um, hooked up with one of the local fishermen who has a distribution company in Jacksonville, North Carolina, who is actually delivering fresh fish right off the boat to my restaurants in Charleston today. So that's super exciting. Hey, Corey. Hi. Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm sleepy, but I'm good. How are you?
0: <laughs> you sound sleepy, but you look, you look cozy. Thanks. Yeah. Corey's all bundled up in her, um, her sailboat blankie.
1: <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's, start. let's start from the beginning because I want to mention the fact that you drove... From Charleston to Charlotte to Raleigh to Oriental
0: yeah, for the
1: reasons of
0: hanging out with all these chefs and, and participating in this field trip. Yeah, so, um, you know, I don't know. For, let, me, let me just say I would highly recommend anybody who gets an opportunity to participate in one of these events, one of these kind of local events put on by kind of like a state department, do it. It was a lot of fun. They, they put a lot of resources into it. They took great care of us, and, I, and I'm glad that I went. But, see, last Sunday, I left early in the morning. Oh, no, I, I went to Charlotte first. That's right. It was a two-leg two trip. So first, I headed up to Charlotte from Charleston on Saturday evening. Kind of had a layover in Charlotte. Checked in on the restaurants.
1: You say layover as, you, as if you flew, but you decided to drive. You were car, you were carpooling, carpooling with um, Ashley, Chef Ashley Boyd, and Chef Chris Coleman. What was that like?
0: Right, that was awesome. So, you know, we were actually so we were actually going to record the the trip up, uh, but we were you know kind of in, in a hurry to get started, so we didn't set up the equipment in the car. I wasn't even sure if that would work. Uh, But we thought it would be funny to record our conversations on the three-hour drive to Raleigh. But it was a lot of fun. I I hadn't had a chance to catch up really um, with Ashley in years. And we've done a lot of events together in the past. She's the chef and partner at 300 East Restaurant in Charlotte. Um, She's awesome and and participates in all the local charity events and stuff like that. She's got a lot of stuff going on. It was nice to catch up with her. I'll definitely interview her soon. And then, you know, Chris Coleman and I are are buds. We've known each other for a long time, cooked together at these events. I interviewed him on the podcast, which was a lot of fun. So we had a good time kind of bullshitting and catching up and, (laughs) you know, kind of getting ourselves lubricated for the weekend where we would have to, you know, be social with with a lot of um, chefs that we didn't know. So that was a good drive. But... Game time decision. We decide to drive straight to Oriental from from Charlotte. We carpooled together, and I think it was about a four and a half or five hour drive, which was a lot of fun. It was it was cool to um to get up there, but but it was a, I think a little more comfortable to drive in separately than on the
1: on the on the on bus. The, on
0: the bus. Yeah, on the uh, the Chef bus, um, which, by the way, was a very nice bus. Like, it was comfy. It had, like, the plugs like you're on a, on an airplane, you know, like so you could, like, charge your phone. It had, like, the little AC vent thing. And it wasn't a bad bus. I was a little <laughs> – I didn't want to do the bus at first. I was like, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to do all that. Uh, but it was actually a, a really they, – they sprung for the nice bus. So that was cool. We actually used it um, to skip around – during the field trip to the different events and stuff. Um, so that was cool. Yeah. So long trip up there with, with the, the kids. But, um, once we got there, it was, uh, it was cool. We ended up having, I ended up staying in an Airbnb with Duke Kroger who actually works with us now at fifth street group. He's the CDC at church and union Charleston and Daniel Wheeler, who is a chef he is now an instructor, actually, at the Caldwell Community College for their culinary program, but he has worked all over Charlotte. I mean, most listeners will know some of the restaurants that he's worked in. I mean, he worked with Paul Verica at the Stanley. He worked. He's been around Charlotte for a long time, um, and and is a very good good chef and a good teacher. And he was also the star comic relief for the entire weekend. He had everybody rolling to the point of almost vomiting every day. Um, funny, funny dude. Um, so we, we shared at Airbnb. A bunch of the chefs were at the, I think, Noose River Suites or something, a local ho- hotel there. There was a couple other houses. So we were kind of broken up. But then that evening, we all got together at Barco's restaurant where they put on a kind of little orientation. They had some live music. There was a gentleman there doing a, a chat about a local um, gin that they're making up there, which I obviously didn't partake in. <laughs> but, um, but a lot of the other chefs did. There was a lot of blueberry gin being drunk <laughs> and people getting wild and kind of getting to know each other. Do your listeners
1: Sunday. know that you're sober, that you don't drink alcohol? I, I mean, it's not something that you like advertise or like push really hard, but I mean. Yeah, I don't do, know. Do they know? I well, now know. they do. Now you do. <laughs> yeah, so
0: I am. Um, I am what three years three sober. Years, yeah. Three years sober. Probably the best decision I ever made. But yeah, actually, and that's a good point. It was interesting. I. I I don't know if I was the only sober person there. I think I was. <laughs>
1: you also kicked um, cigarettes too. I kicked
0: everything. I don't yeah. I don't do anything. I hardly take any time.
1: You eat Oreos. That. That's your vice. <laughs> Oreos are my <laughs> vice.
0: And I try to control that habit. Yeah. You know, it was it was kind of weird. I think I I think I was the only sober chef there. I didn't notice anybody else actively like abstaining from festivities or whatever, but that's an awkward situation to be in, to be the only person who is sober and, you know, a, a large group of people who are, you know, lubricating and, and drinking was, um, it was interesting. It was fine. I had no urges or no desires to drink at all. Uh, but in the past, I would often you know, drink socially. You know, I I think a lot of people have that social anxiety where it's kind of, you don't know people and it's uncomfortable to talk about yourself or whatever. So I used to drink in that setting.
1: I noticed that personally being like a a huge adjustment from not drinking anymore when you go out to dinner and even asking like, well, do I ask for a mocktail? Because usually it's like mocked at you. You feel kind of like, uh, like embarrassed. Right. But I think, you know, after a while and it becoming more and more popular for just people in general, including chefs, to being more sober, obviously not on this trip. But it being, I, for me personally, easier to not be afraid to be like, you know what, I don't drink.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, it, it takes an adjustment, you know. And then also, for, for me, staying engaged when people are partying. It's difficult. I find that like I I I lose interest in the conversations and stuff like that, and actually just participating in a social environment when there's when it's centered around kind of drinking and stuff. Totally. But I will say there was some interesting. You know, the people watching was kind of fun because, you know, the the last night we were there.
1: Are you about to spill the beans on somebody getting wasted? No, okay, I would never do that. <laughs> okay. I would never
0: do that publicly on a podcast. Okay. But, but what I will say is that so on the last night at Tidewater Farm, they, they did like a little cookout for us, and they pulled out the big barrel grill, and they were frying soft shells that we had caught, and the guys from Tidewater and their their hunting club, mm-hmm. and I'll get to that in a minute because that's pretty interesting, put on this big kind of... Um, cookout for all the chefs and there was a a bluegrass band there and everybody was getting wild out drinking and local beers and all that kind of stuff and and they started like a kind of a line dancing hoedown kind of at the end (laughs) and at that point is when I decided I would go go take a nap on the bus (laughs) but it was a lot of fun I mean people were really enjoying themselves and it was it was awesome to see but going back, so... So, uh, so
1: uh, day one, you basically made the drive with the chefs and then you guys went out to dinner. What, did, what was the actual like first event that you guys went to?
0: Like the first activity that we did? Yeah. So we were broken up into two groups. There was so I think there was around 30 chefs there. So we were broken into like groups of 15. Um, and the events that we partook in, I mean, there was a bunch of people representing different local products throughout the weekend that we're like talking about like there was a there was a a guy from who has a malting this dude from Germany who lives lives up there now who has a malting company where he malts local barleys and stuff and actually uses some of the rice from Tidewater to sell to breweries to do local beers and things like that It was really interesting so talking to him about that process but that stuff kind of happened peppered throughout The weekend. But the main events that we did, we we did a tour of the Tidewater Grain Company rice farm. We went crabbing with Paradise Shores Adventures. Adventures, yeah. Yep. Um, They have a crabbing operation where they do local blue crabs and soft shells. And that was super interesting. And then we went out on a, a local fishing boat where they did some netting, like inshore netting. We were targeting speckled trout. That was super fun to see how they how they do that. I wanted those fish bad. They were they were beautiful trout. And then Lighthouse Shoals Oyster Oyster Farm. So those were the main events.
1: I have some questions about the Tidewater. I yeah, mean, we, gonna... we we can go down the list. But... We'll, we'll go
0: down the list. Let me let me talk. Yeah, let me start off with Tidewater because they were kind of the main event. They were hosting a lot of the the meals and the cookouts and um, and awesome guys. So Tommy and Al. I'll I'll put all the connects in the show notes and stuff for who these guys are and stuff. These guys were awesome dudes to get to know. I mean, just great. Did they
1: let you? So, from what I know about harvesting grain or rice, is basically rice is grown underwater, so the crop is some it has to be submerged. And I know traditionally, at least what I've seen in Charleston, is that you have to like basically go in a boat and tap the tap the plant with a rod and basically knock the grain into whatever you're catching it. Mm-hmm. Did, is that the process no. or is that old school? That's old school. Oh, okay. That's old school
0: AF. <laughs> I thought the same thing about rice. It had to be grown underwater and that's not actually true. It it there's a couple different ways to grow it and actually the North Carolina State Agriculture Department mm-hmm. of the the the, college, the university is doing some studies that Tidewater is involved in, mm-hmm. where they have some um, test plot out in the Midwest somewhere where they're going growing the same rice varietals in dry plots that are not flooded, and then versus the plots in Tidewater where they are flooded, and they use like this aqueduct system of flooding and draining the fields periodically. But rice does not actually need to be submerged. It
1: just needs to a go. ton of water. It
0: needs a ton of water. So it needs a lot of water. But from my understanding, the, the reason that they chose to do flooded fields here is, A, that's how they used to do it. Um, well, but, that's
1: also the topography of the area.
0: Right. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But also weed, weed suppression. By flooding the fields, they don't have to use pest control because the weeds can't grow submerged in water but the rice actually does pretty well so i believe that's why they do it but man seeing their operation they move they move millions of gallons of water a day around the property with these giant pumps drainage systems and 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 shit it was it was wild but let's go to okay let's talk about tidewater so tidewater from my understanding was kind of realized from a a small hunting club, like a duck hunting club's desire to have land to hunt ducks on. I mean, these guys are fanatical about fowl hunting. Their entire house, like where they, where they stay when they're up there, the, the farmhouse that's on the property is like decked out with like...
1: It's taxidermies?
0: Yeah. Like, really? It's like if, if, if that kind I of thing wigged movie. you out, yeah. it would be like out of a horror movie. <laughs> But I mean, it's so tastefully done. I mean, this, these are beautiful birds. I mean, these guys take a lot of pride in, in hunting the ducks.
1: I like to eat ducks, so I'm not opposed. <laughs> yeah, well, so,
0: and we had some duck at the cookout that they had that they had shot last season. Um, apparently, duck season's in the fall. So this entire operation is about funding their desire to have land and keep their hunting club going without having to charge... Um, crazy hunting fees to the members to, to support the land. Mm-hmm. So it's to, it's basically to pay for the land lease is why they started doing the rice, which, which was crazy. But anyways, the, the, the farmhouse is beautiful. It's all decked out with these, these, you know, taxidermy ducks that they've caught fishing rods. Like it's all about enjoying the sound up there, right? Oriental and the, and the, you know, the coastal waterways. That's what they're all about. That's where their passion is. Okay. So going to the rice. So they have this hunting club, you know, they have members, they're, they're, they're paying for this, this small lease that they have. And they try to figure out how to make it a viable business that it kind of can help pay for their, their hunting addiction and doing some research. They're all North Carolina guys. Al, I believe comes from farming family. They have some large, farms around the area I'm not exactly sure I didn't ask him what they grew or whatever but I believe it's like you know some commodity crop type stuff so he has a background in and farming and equipment and stuff like that they're they were super passionate about finding a product that would celebrate the history and agriculture of the area which kind of led them to I guess rice used to be grown in this area back in the in the early early days so it kind of led them there which sent them down a rabbit hole of like what kind of rice grow there, what kind of this and that. And it just so happened that the land that they had was on a ridge, like a natural ridge that flowed in either direction down to two rivers that would empty into the Pemlico Sound. So it made sense to do rice there because they would be able to flood that, that ridge area and then be able to naturally drain it over time. So they are like, oh, rice is the way to go. And I believe that led them to Anson Mills. Anson Mills, who, you know, Glenn Roberts and Anson Mills started the whole Charleston Gold and Carolina Gold Rice Foundation back in the day to bring those those rice crops back into popularity. So they ended up working with those guys, learning a lot about it, and um, decided to go into their own rice business. So they are actually growing, I believe, two different types of rice out there right now. There might be more, but I think they bring to market the, the Carolina Gold is the main varietal that they're, um, that they're growing, of which we scored a couple bags straight from, the, uh, straight from the mill, which was pretty awesome. And they do another, what is the other rice called? I can't remember. It's a long grain rice. Anywho, really good stuff. And the coolest thing about Tidewater, I think, to me, was that they, they handle the rice all the way through the process. So they do the growing. They do the harvesting. Um, they actually built a mill recently. Um, and... Uh, so they do all the milling themselves and then they package in, I think in Winston-Salem is where they do the packaging and then they distribute from there. So um, I thought that was super cool that they actually control the rice all the way through the process. Um, and they are all about zero waste, total sustainability. Um, they they have, um, they take all the, you know, the, the, Byproducts from the milling, like the hulls and the, um, the bran and stuff from the rice as they're milling it, and they separate that stuff out through the milling process. And I'll have a bunch of pictures of that um, on the Instagram so people can see how that process works. But um, they and they sell that to like local farmers. I didn't realize that the bran, um, the kind of the shake that comes off the rice, mm-hmm. um, the starchy bran when they're milling it, is actually the most nutritious part. Of the rice it has all like the essential oils in it
1: well, that mainly you like wash down the sink when you're yeah when you're, when you're ready to cook it totally yeah. yeah yeah
0: this is like the stuff that we throw away yeah so they sell that to like cattle farmers and stuff like that to for as supplemental feed and stuff because it has all that that stuff in it and I actually asked them Tommy if I could get my hands on some brand but it, it they actually he said yeah I can give it to you but you can't serve it to anybody it's classified not for human consumption because of the amount of essential oils that are in it, it's mm-hmm. considered rancid. Like, unless it's controlled from the moment they harvest it, you know, either through. But that's
1: okay to give it to cows?
0: Yeah, because they're not humans. Crazy. Trained, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it would be bad for humans. I think, I think the idea is that because it can spoil so quickly and it's not controlled through temperature from the moment they harvest it, uh-huh. they can't legally sell it to humans gotcha. or for human consumption. Anyways, that was super, super interesting. Yeah, just an awesome learning experience. From there, uh, we moved on to the crabbing operation, which was super fun. The guys.
1: Chef Duke was actually telling me about some fun facts about blue crabs. And my mind was kind of blown when you were you know, texting me about it, about blue crabs crabs being soft shell crabs and have just like it it was kind of mind-blowing because i i had no idea any of this so i definitely want you to enlighten some listeners who don't know that it's the same crab yeah molting
0: yeah
1: harvested within a six hour time frame it has to be six hours right yeah
0: so the way the process they do it there yeah a lot of people don't know that soft shell crabs are actually blue crabs they are just blue crabs that have shed their shell and are in between their new shell hardening and what these what these guys do out on um Pumlico Sound is that they they harvest the crabs they have they have how many crab traps do they have it was it's a lot they have like 2000 maybe 2000 crab traps, cat crab traps or 2500 or something littered around the sound and they legally have to harvest the traps every five days, or they can get ticketed. They're not allowed to leave traps for more than five days without being checked. And there's actually... Why like is fish, that- I, I'm not exactly sure why. Okay. Um, it's just a, it's a control that the Fish and Wildlife Service puts on them. And they're out there patrolling around um, in the sound, like checking traps. And they'll ta- they actually have tags that they'll put on the... Um, they put tags on the traps and they'll come back and check those traps in five days. And if the tag has not been removed by the fishermen, they get ticketed
1: Wow.
0: to make sure that they're like rotating there and they're checking it and not just like leaving. I, I'm not exactly sure why, Right. but it's a control mechanism. Anywho. So they check these traps and, and they separate on the boat. As they pull them up, they empty the traps into this little bin, which I'll have pictures of that too. And the, Crabs are snapping around in, in this little bin and they separate them into hard shell blue crabs. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're crabs that are they're, that, ready that, to molt. that are ready, ready to molt or have just molted. And I can't remember what they call it. There's a term that they use for it. anyways, and they separate them into a separate bin. And those crabs, when they're done with their day, they go back to the dock and the, and the blue crabs or the hard crabs that are that are separated go straight to the distributors where, or the packing house, the fish house where they'll separate them and then and, and send them off to market.
1: Do you know what keeps a soft shells crab in the like process? Like when does it stay soft instead of harden, Like what actually makes it harden?
0: Uh, No, I, I don't know exactly. Like
1: they harvest the soft shell or they wait for the soft shells to molt. And then what stops the process of making that shell hard? I think
0: removing them from the water.
1: The salt water. Yeah,
0: I think removing them from that environment. I believe, and okay. I'm, I don't know this certainly, but I, my, my understanding is that
1: should I should have been on the field trip. You should have been <laughs> on the field sure. trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: it's, it's, there's a lot to it, and I don't I don't know all the things, but what what I what I found really interesting is that so they take these the separated soft shell crabs, right? That maybe aren't they haven't quite molted yet, and they they have these tanks set up um, back on their 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 farm or their plot or whatever their dock. And there's like six tanks and they're actually pumping the the water from the river into these tanks. So it's the same water that the crabs would be staying in. And um, it's shallow. It's maybe like, I don't know, six inches deep, maybe enough to like the crabs are submerged in there and they they separate them into these tanks and um, they have to check them every three hours. And I actually have some pictures that'll be on the thing of the crabs molting like shedding their shedding their shells it's crazy it's wild to like yeah. to see it i was like whoa that's n- like nuts <laughs> can't imagine having to like rip my skin off and um and, and have a new skin every so often but anyways oh. um so when when they shed that that shell they have i think i think she she said 6 hours to remove them before they their shell hardens, so they have to check them every three hours once they're in these tanks, and then you know separate them out into soft shells. Pretty crazy. I mean, wow. it's a, yeah, it's like it reminded me of when we had the farm, and and you know
1: totally. I was I was going to mention that like the amount of work and time that these small companies have to go through in order to put something like very good quality on your plate but that like for for it to be either wasted or accidentally dropped on the floor, like my heart crushes. I'm like, do you know how long it took that one oyster to grow? Yeah. One oyster.
0: Yeah. Crazy.
1: Tell tell them how long it takes. I, I think
0: it takes about a year. It takes like eight. It takes between nine, nine to 12 months. I think for, for an oyster to grow to maturity where it's, you know, big enough to actually eat or the shells, you know,
1: it just it, it makes enough. you appreciate where your food comes from. It to me is super, just amazing the the way that nature does its thing. I guess yeah, and just, and, you
0: know yeah, and that and that, and that people are still dedicated to practices it's that so that, much that, work. That, yeah, so it's, it's much yeah, work. it's a lot of work. I mean, it's it's huge. You know, I can't. These guys are pulling. I think he said they, around, they, they shoot for 500 traps a day to be able to check out of the 2,000. If they get 400, he said that's pretty good. But it's just two people on this boat, you know, the skipper driving and kind of pulling the rope around a winch that kind of pulls the trap off the bottom. And then a sorter in the back who actually opens the traps, you know, dumps the crabs out, sorts them, rebates the trap and drops it. Um, it, it was it was really cool and they have such a good system.
1: I've cleaned blue crab too. It's not easy. At the restaurants, right? At <laughs> yeah, Tempest. It right? is it's not easy.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's not easy. It is a very time consuming. That's why crab's so expensive. I don't think people realize that. And I think that was a great lesson too about this, is like it adds so much value for me as a chef to the product when you meet the people that are doing it and how they care for it and the amount of attention and time it takes to do it, like, you know, $25 a pound is not that much for cleaned crab meat. <laughs> I think you it's know? something
1: that every chef should learn. And I love the fact that they're, you know, doing these events and field trips for chefs to learn all these things. Cause it just, it makes you appreciate the food that much more i mean you guys already appreciate food but to know where it comes from and how it's harvested and all of the work involved is like just kind of mind-blowing
0: yeah so let's that's a great segue to do a shout out for um chad blackwelder he was the gentleman who kind of got us on this trip who helped organize the trip he is the north Carolina north carolina department of agriculture food and service marketing specialist so he's the one responsible for for educating us and getting all these chefs together and putting these events on so thank you chad for that you're awesome keep me in mind for the next one and and i'll help spread the word but yeah i agree with you it's so cool to educate you know it's and let people know that these kinds of things are happening in our backyard you know they're available here this isn't stuff that's coming from maine it's not coming from boston these are things that are happening right here you know in north and south carolina
1: let's touch a little bit on the oyster oyster farm that you visited and what that what that process was like and what you learned from that
0: yeah so they had a pretty cool they had a pretty cool setup Um, who's
1: they yeah so it was
0: lighthouse shoals oyster Company. They were actually talking about when we were out there. They had a little floating barge out at their their oyster lease. It's a very small operation. This barge had like a crane on top of it, like a small hydraulic crane. And then they had some stainless steel kind of rack system that went down um, almost like four posts, stainless steel posts that went down into the ocean floor or the the floor of the the sound, and then suspended at the top of that. It was like a scaffolding squared off grid. And in between each grid was um, a rack of oysters in the bags, kind of like the same way they do it or a similar way that they do it at Low Country Oyster in the Ace Basin. But they had, I think it was about, I think there was four layers of bags in each section. And there were four sections per per. So they are they
1: are suspended. They're not like on the they
0: are suspended, but and and I they are. They're suspended at top. and then they sort them by size and change them into larger mesh bags as the oysters get bigger, and they put less and less oysters per bag as they as they get bigger, so they have plenty of water flow and all that. But one thing that they said that was interesting to me and I was a little confused by I need to follow up on is is they said that they actually drop the them down to the bottom when they're almost ready to go, which confused me because the bottom of the the bottom would be the murkier water where where it's muddier. Um, So I I need to follow up on that. I want to I want to get some samples of their oysters and do a little tasting and see what's up about that because I would think that you would want the finished oysters at the top. Right? Like at the very top, at the cleanest, least dirty water because they filter feed, right? They filter that water through. so if you have a a murkier water that they're feeding on, then that flavor will will carry over.
1: It might be colder the lower you get to. It could might- be.
0: yeah, I have to I'm gonna follow up with them and send them an email and get a little clarification on their process there. Yeah. Uh, but it was a cool little setup. It's really small it's It's not a whole lot. I think right now they said. Did they say? Did they say a million oysters? It's about a million oysters altogether in the in the farm, you know. And they actually have not started harvesting for the public yet. We were we were tasting straight from the um, from the racks, and they were good oysters. They had a little bit of a buttery kind of flavor to them. Um, the shells were very brittle. I was
1: going to ask, were you able to shuck one of them and how was that? Yeah.
0: So, so I, I tried to shuck one from the back the way that we, we shuck typically. And I actually, there was no, where the, where the um, hinges, where the two shells come together, there's no crevice at all to like fit the knife in, to, to pry it open. And the guy um, was actually shucking them from the other side, which I was like, not into. I, was, <laughs> I mean, well, I, it was cool to see him do it, but I did not like the technique because it, it actually cracks the shell.
1: Gotcha. You
0: know, so you have to pick the shell out um, because as you, you gum from the, from the lip of the oyster rather than the hinge in the back, you know, it's very brittle there where it comes together. And so you kind of have to like jimmy it open. And, and right. it was like kind of sh- cracking the shell and getting pieces of shell in there. So I don't know if that, I don't know if that is a characteristic of this particular oyster or where they're grown or just where they were at and they're growing you know if they were ready I don't I don't think they were ready for market yet Um, so they maybe still had a little bit of time to uh, harden up shells harden up and stuff so I don't know I'll follow up question that as well
1: oysters are fascinating
0: yeah they're wild and I think there's only I think there's two varieties of oyster that all of the oysters in the world come from so, like oysters are not like cattle or or chickens or whatever where there's like hundreds of different breeds uh, breeds there's two uh one is the the what we know is like the east coast oyster and the what we know is the west coast oyster, and the difference in the oysters is not the breed but where they're actually grown right. so Every grounds or, uh, you know, whether it's a fishing ground where you get wild oysters or a farm, you know, has different salinity levels, different water flows, different fertility of the water, like how nutritious the water is that affects. And, and then also like, you know, different levels of nitrogen and oxygen, and all those kind of things, I think that affect the, the flavors of the oysters, which mm. I find completely crazy.
1: You can definitely taste it though.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean,
1: Well little blind tasting. I think you could pinpoint where the oyster was grown most of the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you could definitely, at least a region. I mean, I couldn't tell you what farm it came from, but I could probably tell you, um, you know, if it's a north, northeastern oyster, or a northwestern oyster, um, you know, or a southern oyster or a golf oyster, which I do, I do not like golf oysters. I know that. My preference is no-go on, on the...
1: You also said that about Southern did, oysters until you tried low, low Country Cups. Yeah, so,
0: so Trey McMillan at low, low Country Oyster changed my mind on that, um, which is why I was excited to go to Lighthouse Shoals too and see, see another Southern oyster company using those Northern Technics. growing techniques to, to do it. Yeah, my, my, my brain you know, moving down here from the north, you know, years ago was that, you know, southern oysters were muddy and nasty, um, and, the, and the wild ones are.
1: I would say a lot of them are. Yeah, yeah. If you
0: get wild southern oysters, they are muddy and disgusting. I mean, they grow in the yuck mud, like yeah. in this sulfury mud on the coast, and, um, and you get a pressure wash them to get it off, and they just taste like dirt to me. And that was my impression. But what these, lo- what these farmers are doing now with these suspended cages in these like hyper-nutritious estuaries on the coast are producing really excellent oysters. And not only that, oysters help to filter out all the impurities and crap in the water. So it's great for the environment. And... They grow so fast down here because the water. You know temperatures what's crazy is that
1: they do that for the water, but for our consumption, they're they just as healthy for yes. us as they are for the water. It's, it's like a wonderful, crazy, creepy little thing in a shell. I want
0: to. <laughs> it is. It is mind blowing. They are amazing organisms. Like I don't. I can't. I can't wrap my head around it because I'm not like a biologist. But that just. Is, I want to talk to. A marine biologist and, and learn. I want to understand how they do that. Right. Like I understand that they filter the water and remove like the stuff from it, but like.
1: I was how? I was walking down the um, mega dock in Charleston watching them. The tides come in and out, and watching the oysters just like spit shoot into back into the water. Oh,
0: when it's low tide and yeah. they're like up on the, the pillars, yeah. yeah, and they're like spitting the water out.
1: It's like a little natural water feature,
0: yeah. I don't think people realize that either. That like oysters can live outside of the water for like days, yeah, da- weeks, right? Which is crazy. Um, yeah, and actually, it's actually part of the growing process at Loco. Um, I don't know if these guys at Lighthouse Shoals are doing it. I'll ask that too. I'm gonna make a note about that.
1: That they pull them so, basically, they pull them out of the water basically to strengthen and like uh, tighten their muscles.
0: Right. And, and, and to help they, firm up their, their, their shells. Their shells, too. right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I, I never knew that when we were visiting with Trey and he had these like just bags and bags of oysters out like, on the dock, just sitting, and they're just, like, you know, shooting the shit with us, like, hey, what's up? I'm, like, thinking of myself as a chef, I'm, like, yo, don't those have to be in the cooler, like, bro, like, either put them in the water or in the cooler, like, we can't just leave shit around, and he, and I asked him about it, and he explained, no, that's part of the process, because the um, oyster, when it's out of the water, like, at high tide, or low tide, right, when the water's down and the oysters are exposed, they, they cinch up those, um, the their abductor muscles to close that shell tight to keep the water inside and protect them which actually makes them meatier and um i think it has to do with the cup too right doesn't it deepen the cup when they do that i think so yeah so if you see the oysters that are more flat like blade like they probably have not been out of the water when you get those deep cups those are probably ones that have had it's wild
1: they they work out a lot they work out yeah
0: (laughs) toughies little toughies
1: all right, so day two. I hope I didn't skip anything. I don't know your entire timeline of. Oh, We that went on the trout trip. fishing.
0: I do want to cover oh, okay. the trout. So gotcha. we went out on this little boat, and it's <laughs> like a little in water, like flat bottom boat with like a, a big, a big wheel, on the back of it. On the wheel is spun a a net, and the fishermen they add depending on what fish they're targeting, they have different size nets, you know, and stuff like that. Um, what we were fishing this day was speckled trout basically it's uh eight i think it was 800 yards i think or 600 yards of net so it's pretty long i mean it's like six football fields long um, and on on the very end there's a buoy that floats um, and on the bottom of the net is a weighted line so it drops to the bottom and um, you basically just get to wherever you want to fish i think we were about
1: are these farmed fish or are these no these
0: are wild this okay. is wild fishing yeah and they have like their different spots you know like I guess when you grow up on the the sound like that, you just kind of know where the fish are at at different times. Um, they move around, so like depending on what time of year it is, or, or they
1: just have a really dope fish finder.
0: Yeah, you could have a dope fish finder <laughs> for kidding. sure. I mean, I guess I'm just kidding. I think I think there's a lot of local knowledge that goes to it, and you'll yeah. you'll understand why in a second when I explain the process. It was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> they they pick their spot, and I think we we started out we dropped the 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 buoy probably. I don't know, maybe twenty five yards from from the shore, and it was pretty shallow. I think it was probably about six or eight feet deep. like it wasn't very deep where we were at, and it has a little outboard. It has a powerful outboard motor on the back, so it's and it's flat bottom so you can get in real close to shore on these things. So we were about twenty five yards, maybe from the shore, and we dropped the first buoy, and then they slowly kind of like Arch out away from the shore and loop around, slowly dropping, you know, wheeling this um, net into the water behind the boat. Um, And uh, it has different colored um, tags on top of the line. So as you're letting it out, you know, okay, we've let out 200 yards, 300 yards. And they're kind of tracking how far. And once they get to like the last 100 yards, they start to loop back towards the shore so that and they leave a gap between the shore and the last part of the net so they can bring the boat inside or outside of the net.
1: Did they get a lot of bycatch with that technique?
0: We got, I think,
1: Well, can, I'll, I'll get can, to that in a second. Can you explain also what a bycatch is?
0: Yep, let me, let me finish the process and then okay. I'll answer that question because mm-hmm. I, I was wondering that too while we were doing this process. I was like, wow, this seems mm-hmm. like a, right. it's kind of gnarly. Yeah. Um, so, so then they drop the last bit 600 yards away with a little gap between the shore and the net so that they can bring the boat on the inside of the net or on the outside of the net okay and then um, so the the net's there we kind of kind of regrouped out there and then and then they just they take the boat on the inside of the net and they start and they just throttle it like as fast as they can they start doing donuts so it's like super fun and what they're doing is they're um they're stirring up the the mud and stuff on the bottom okay and they do that all along the net so we kind of cruise back and forth along the net doing these donuts and stuff stirring up all the 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 mud and stuff on the bottom so the water gets super murky and what that does is it clouds the vision of the fish so now they can't see the net floating there and then they go on the outside of the net and they start you know blazing the boat back and forth and they go inside the net and they blaze Damn, back and
1: gangbusters forth. and they're
0: just throttling it up and down the length of the net through this murky water. And what that does is it, it spooks the fish, they move out to the edge and they, they try to escape and they get caught in the net. So, I feel
1: like that's a fairly common technique though with um, Japanese fishing. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. just fishing in general, fishing techniques of like yeah, yeah. Corral, basically corralling them and totally. confusing them.
0: Yeah, I mean, like there's a, there is a, a festival in is it in Spain on the coast of Spain where they, they where they catch the tuna like once a year in this huge like festival. And it's like, and the, and the line that they use to, to corral them into these tuna when they're migrating is like miles long. And it's, I can't remember the name of it. I read about it in Dan Barber's book. Um, and it's just wild. He has a really, a really great depiction of, um, of this whole, this ancient, fishing practice but yeah i think they've been doing this kind of thing for you know centuries or whatever
1: is this company um what is the company i don't i
0: don't know i don't think they were represented like on the
1: i'm um, assuming it's like there's regulations about like how much you can fish how much you can 75
0: 75 speckled trout uh, a day is their catch limit and if they catch them so i'll get to that in a second okay let me let me so so you blaze back and forth they they you know to scare the fish into the net and then they go back to the end of the line where they where the last part they dropped and they they bring it on the front of the boat mm-hmm. through um they have these two metal posts and they hook it back to the wheel and they have a motor on the wheel and they start um, slowly motoring you know into the net while they have the motor and it pulls the net onto this thing and there's a huge tub that the net come kind of goes over as they're wheeling it back onto the, the the wheel that's that they can put the fish into. And so as they pull it up, you know, there'll be a fish or two caught in the net. They stop, you know, they stop the motor, they pull the fish out, put it into the thing. Now, we caught on our trip, I think I think twenty one trout or something on our our one drop of the line. I think we caught one horseshoe crab. Which we threw back into the water, we caught one uh one other fish. what did they call that? It was a bycatch, but it but we kept it.
1: a bycatch bycatch is
0: okay, so bycatch is a fish that is either caught online or net that is not the target fish
1: an un- un- unintentional catch an un-
0: unintentional catch and um so the bycatch in this case was a small, I can't remember what they call it. They eat them there. Uh, but they also use them as bait, bait fish. So um, so, they, so everything gets used. But I think we only caught one or two of those. Um, it wasn't like a lot. And the reason for that is the type of net that we were fishing with. So we were targeting trout. The, the fish have, the nets have different um, diameters of space and whatever. And so you can catch different types of fish. So um, smaller fish than the trout. These So these speckled trout were probably... If I had to guess, two and a half pounds, maybe three pounds. So they're nice size fish. Uh, maybe two feet long is the biggest one. They're about 18 inches, something like that. Nice, really nice size fish. But anything smaller than that can, can swim through the net. Um, anything bigger than that uh, wouldn't be in this area. It was, right. I think it was too shallow for like bigger fish. So, so they have target type nets that's, that catch specific fish. Yeah. Uh, so that was super cool um, seeing that whole process, you know, I asked him, you know, how long it takes for them to catch their limit. He said, some days, um, depending on what's going on time of year, they'll catch all 75 fish in their first net, you know? Um, and they have a seven, then they can't fish for that anymore. And if they get caught with more than that and they'll be checked, um, they get pretty hardcore fines from the, um, fish and wildlife services. Um, so I asked him, like, well, what do you do? Like, you just call it a day? Like, <laughs> he said, no, we go in and we get a new net. We get a different net. We go catch something else. I was like, oh, that's cool, I guess. So they're always, they're very busy. They're always, like, until they get their, their limit, they're, they're out there fishing. So that was super cool.
1: So I think well, that was your first day, right? Summed yep. up. Yeah, that was the first day of events, yep. Um, so I saw the next morning a bunch of chefs raving about this food truck that you yeah. guys had for breakfast. Yes.
0: Catch food truck. So that is um, Chef Keith Rhodes' food truck from Wilmington. Keith Rhodes, I think, is nominated for James Beard Award.
1: It looked inc- incredible. What yeah.
0: It, it was awesome. So they, had, they did for us a local, you know, um, air quoting shrimp and grits. But it was a local shrimp with, um, with the rice midlands grits which midlands is like the crushed up rice the rice that gets crushed in the milling process Mm -hmm. Um, so it looks like grits it's like pieces of rice um, that they cook like grits so they called it shrimp and grits it was really well done had a little hush puppy on it just super delicious and the rice was from tidewater obviously yeah that was a highlight i mean
1: do they travel, or it's just basically uh, Wilmington-based? It's Wilmington-based, Wilmington
0: yeah. So, um, so Keith started the food truck, I, I, I don't know the dates, but like years ago, you know, wanting to do his own thing. He uses a lot of local farms, local products. He's, a, he's definitely like a um, sustainable, you know, sh- chef. But, you know, he could, they, they could start it. So they started this food, food truck, got great following, Doing an awesome job and now has a restaurant in Wilmington as well as the truck. And is just, you know, taken over, what, over. what's
1: them. Do you know his restaurant in I Wilmington? Think, catch. Catch? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and he's a super nice guy. I did not get to spend a whole lot of time talking to him. I didn't know him really previously to the trip. But he's such a kind, like, nice dude. I definitely, we need to make a trip to Wilmington. I want to get him on the podcast and try his restaurant and stuff. But his food is amazing. He takes a lot of care sourcing out products using local stuff, seasonal stuff, really pushing that narrative for the Wilmington area. So, yeah, he's he's awesome and the food was was excellent. So that's how we started day 2.
1: I saw a lot of sailboats, so maybe we can we can sail up there. I know the guys from Crystal Coast Oysters wanted to show you around the farm too, so I'm you yeah. know, I'm always down for <laughs> especially a sailing trip.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, so I guess they were saying Oriental, North Carolina is like the sailing capital of um of North Carolina. And there was a lot of boats. I mean, when I wasn't <laughs> on one of these chef things, I was walking around on the...
1: Of course you were. Yeah, I was
0: checking out on the boat. <laughs> and all the other chefs were like, here, here he goes. There's a sailboat <laughs> thing.
1: Whatever. but it's not, um, it's not for everyone, but it's it, definitely for you. It's
0: definitely for me. Um, yeah, but there's there's tons of marinas, tons of boats. There's a, There was a large shrimp fleet. I saw about five large shrimping boats um, right there in the marina
1: did you get to go shrimping we
0: didn't get to go shrimping those boats weren't out i think because of the nor'easter that was blowing in there was a strong northeasterly wind that came in the first night we were there Mm -hmm. Um, so much so that actually the the streets um, the marina in oriental like comes right to the main street like it literally the dock is like the sidewalk of the main street and the So at high tide, the water is like at street level. And with this northeasterly wind is blowing. Does
1: it flood when there's a king tide? It
0: was flooded. It was flooded when we got there. Wow. We had to drive through like, I don't know, two feet of water on Main Street because when the wind, it comes, it comes right to, it does flood at king tide. Right. But at high tide, it's right to the street level. But if you have that high tide plus the northeasterly wind, it floods the downtown. They were saying it happens all the time. So they're just, everybody knows what, what the weather is, like what the weather's going to be like. Yeah. So they know whether they got to bring their high boots or not. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the so fishing fleet comes right up to the, like the, the dock there. My understanding is that scallop fishermen, um, sea trade scallops come out of Oriental, which is one of the night, highest quality um, scallop brands you can get on the East Coast, um, comes out of there. You actually, I think, buy them out of Massachusetts is where they're, like, kind of sold from. But um, they're actually fished out of these these ports here. Um, so I, I just found that all super interesting.
1: That is super interesting. I don't like scallops, but yeah, if I did, that's super cool. I mean, yeah. either it, way, it's super cool. It is
0: cool. And then, yeah, so, so day two, we did that. Uh, we did the rice. Uh, no, we went to the mill. We did the rice on day one. We did the mill
1: like the actual like processing of the Yeah, the, the processing grain. of
0: the grain, which is pretty cool. They actually uh, I'm like,
1: glad they found different techniques than than whacking the plant with a stick. I can't that imagine seems like doing it would that. Take yeah. Forever. Well, I
0: think the harvest is like in August or something. Like like it's in like it's super hot out. Like I can't imagine hand, you know, hand harvesting. They
1: still do that. Where were we? I think it was either um Palmetto Bluff or uh, one of the, where did you go on top chef? Um, I don't it remember. was the Charleston season and we yeah. had visited the, uh, was it a plantation? I don't know if it was yeah, a plantation, but they had rice operation either way. They, they something. still use that technique Yeah, and just like mind blowing. Yeah.
0: For like a super artisan. Rice product, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine doing that either. That's that's crazy. But at Tidewater, they actually they drain the fields like when the rice is ready. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned this: the Carolina Gold comes from the color of the top of the plant
1: Mm -hmm. when
0: it's ready. Turns this like so. When you're looking out into the field, the stalks are all green, like like a grass, right, Mm -hmm. like a thick grass, and then the very tops become this golden little tuft of you know, grain when they're ready. And um, so when you look out over the field, it's like this golden hue kind of covering these green stalks, and that's how they know it's time to harvest. That's cool. Um, Yeah, so at that point, their time is limited. I didn't realize this either. They have super limited time to harvest because the water content of the stalk, like the the plant is so heavy at this point when the the kernels are plump and, and, you know, ripe at the top that the wind, if the wind comes through, it'll blow, the, blow the, um, the plant over. So now it's laying down, it's not super tall. And the harvester they use, like, you know, cuts the top of the plant off. So if the plants fall over, they're kind of screwed. Like right. they lose these portions of their, their harvest. So, um, so they drain the field, as soon as it's um, dry enough that they can drive their big tractor thing on there, they go out and they just chop off the top of the combine chops off the tops of the, um, of the, the plants. And then they, they harvest it into like these, um, trucks, take it over to their, uh, they take it to, uh, another plant about seven miles up the road for drying. Um, they have these like, uh, we didn't actually go to the dryer, but the way they described it is like these large, uh, metal screened trays, um, giant trays that you spread the, the rice out. in. Oh, like uh, the
1: sifters? Yeah,
0: it's almost like a sifter, and it, and it basically has continuous warm air that blows over it, like real gentle heat to like dry out the moisture content of the rice so it doesn't spoil. Mm-hmm. Once it gets to the right moisture content, they pop it back in a truck, bring it down the road to the mill, and they um, pump it through their own mill. How cool. Super cool, and, and I'll have videos and stuff of the mill because that was just fascinating and finicky and like you know it's it's this like Willy Wonka grain factory where the rice comes in and goes up these chutes and these elevators and then down through these sifters and all this kind of stuff and you know everywhere along the way something can get jammed or stuck or gummed up or whatever so it's like a huge process (laughs) to do your own milling I give these guys credit totally Um, so that was that and then um
1: I highly recommend anyone just anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a chef, if you're, you eat, obviously you eat food. It comes from somewhere. And a lot of farms will do farm tours to educate people, um, get them interested. It obviously brings attention to locally grown product, which we want to support in general. And, um, I think it is something that everyone should take time and do. Day off, they're not day off, whenever
0: totally. I mean, I think to me, it's fascinating, and I think understanding where your food comes from is such an amazing thing to experience. And it gives you it, it actually to me, it improves the experience of eating absolutely, you know, like knowing like knowing the either the places or people or, you know, the techniques in which my food was grown or caught and cared for makes me enjoy the food that I eat more. Yeah, And I think that that's something that we kind of miss in the U.S. a lot. Like people are very disconnected from their food source, and that's sad because um, that's not the case in most of the world. People are very connected to their food source. And that appreciation and just, you know, the enjoyment you get out of the foods you eat I think for such a
1: long time, the the media marketing industry kind of like flooded all the negative things of like larger companies and what they did. And I think it's not um, how local farmers necessarily practice. Um, I think we should get Farmer Sammy on this podcast. He's very much so an advocate for organic farming and humane practices and treats his animals and plants with so much love and care. And I think it's a really beautiful thing to research and to spend time with and not necessarily turn on Netflix and watch how shitty Purdue treats her chickens. Yeah,
0: yeah. These like factory farms right, are just or, like. Yeah. But I mean, that's the other end of the spectrum. You know, I mean, that is that is how the majority of food in the U.S. is being Grown, handled, or whatever, distributed, uh, which is sad. Which and you know that gives me a, just another level of appreciation for what these guys are doing. Absolutely. At the you know North Carolina NC Department of Agriculture is taking a lot of care and effort into helping us understand and support our local farmers. So, mad props to them. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll leave a whole list of the chefs that attended. Um, I. I I can't say it enough. I had a great time. I met a lot of cool chefs. I will definitely follow up with many of them and see if they want to um, share their stories with all of you. That's it. I hope you guys enjoyed the show.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Yeah. If you have any questions, um, leave them in the notes and um, we'll try to, maybe we'll do a live, um, a live chat here in the next couple of weeks or so and answer a bunch of questions that anybody might have about what we're doing and what's going on. All right. Take care.
1: Mike.